The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very well, welcome to the program. This is Squawk Box. The headlines this hour, Amazon tumbles after hours as profit slides for the first time in two years and the retail giant issues soft guidance for the holiday shopping season. Sterling sinks but recovers ground as UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson says he'll allow more time for MPs to debate his Brexit deal if they back a December 12th general election. We're being very, very reasonable. We're saying... Uh, If you genuinely want want more time, you can have it. Here it is. But the the condition for that is that we all agree to go uh, for a general election on December the 12th. Meanwhile, Intel shares pop in extended trade after beating third quarter expectations and raising its full year revenue forecast, easing fears of a trade war related chip slowdown. And Gucci owner Caring plus Italy's Moncler deliver solid growth in the third quarter as strong sales across Asia offset the impact from Hong Kong protests. Good morning, Jeffrey. Good morning, Steve. We were on the same page on something earlier in the week. Well, on the we... one show we've done together. <laughs> yes, it was Wednesday. Right. Okay. And, and you and I both had a, a little raising of the eyebrow in a Dennis oh. Healy-type way when right. one of our guests said you should buy European cyclicals into yes. a European slowdown. Yes. We both went, how does that work? And he was talking about the relative performance because mm. they've been bashed already. Mm. And actually, you know, when it comes to slowdown, perhaps these ones actually can see a bit of sector rotation. I was very surprised about that. But so if there is a cyclical European stock, it has to be something like Lafarge, for instance, as mm. well, which mm. actually hasn't been beaten up. And I just looked at the last year-to-date performance of this stock, and it's 21% higher. And I was very surprised mm. about that, given some of the headwinds against the stock like Lafarge. Yes, over the last three months, it's given back a couple of percent, but it's 20 21% higher over the year-to-date period. So what are the figures out from Lafarge Olusim today? Well, net sales up 4%, recurring EBITDA up 9% in the nine months as well. 2019 targets confirmed. So that's pretty solid. They say growth was achieved in all regions and in all four business segments. But going back to that cyclical story, they are saying they are now slightly more downbeat on Europe as the third quarter sales dip. So you have got this real conundrum, which I mean, straight into the investment side of things for our viewers, rather than politics for once. How do you treat European cyclicals going into what is very clear? And again, we had some pretty awful German uh, market PMI data in the last 24 hours as well. How do you trade European cyclicals going into what is deemed to be a slowdown, if not for many, a recession? Well, uh, one of the keys to this story, and, and coming from the ECB yesterday, I think yes. I'm, I'm sort of full of interest rate news. <laughs> okay. Um, and one of the and things, that will make a difference. Well, yeah. one of the things that um, I think continues just to be supportive in the European context of these very low rates, right? So I had, I thought there was some very interesting conversations yesterday with some of the strategists and investment analysts um, out in Frankfurt, and of course. When you're in Frankfurt, what you notice is the amount of construction activity that is taking place around Frankfurt. Mm. And of course, then you have a conversation about the funding costs for purchasing property in Germany. And even as we talk endlessly about that um, 
uh, careful German saver who's been reluctant to engage in equity ownership or indeed to buy property, that transition has shifted somewhat. Has, yeah. And you look at the prices of property now in core German cities and they've got they've gone a very long way and of course part of the reason for that is if you walk into a german bank you can start talking about 10-year money at 0.5 percent and for anybody that lives in the anglo-saxon financial community financing for 10 years at 0.5 percent is like having free money absolutely and so when you've got funding at those levels um it really then becomes a question of there is no problem getting access to credit for anybody who wants it and can get past the loan officer. The issue is whether they're actually going to spend the money. But for a company like Lafarge, I think that provides quite a supportive backdrop, even as we we express concerns about the cyclicality we'll of the business. Because you accused me of arguing for myself yesterday, because I had to, because your analyst guest there had already gone. But look, yeah. I'm really fascinated in you looking at these Anheuser-Busch InBev numbers now. Um, you got them? I just got one number I want to say. Oh, though. Uh, total volumes decreased by 0.5% in the third quarter 2019. Again, I ask a very basic question. Where is the emerging market growth story offsetting the mature developed market story? Once again, I, I don't understand how you can see total beer volumes decreasing by 0.5% given the demographic story we were sold. And yet the shares, all right, they've held off movement the last couple of months. But look, the 12-month picture is still an incredibly strong performance. Which raises a very interesting question about where you're going to get your um, income generation from or your uh, return on capital from next year. Because what I noticed, again, you know, being on the road out in uh, Washington at the IMF is how many people um, at the IIF event were talking on the fringes about the opportunity to go back into emerging markets if we don't have the full-blown recession. If we get the recovery back to 3.4% growth that the IMF was talking about, then the place to be should be within the emerging markets. But when I look at some of the trade data and some of the business activity that's slowing in some of those key Asian emerging markets at this point, you do wonder actually if this is the right place to be. And yet for a company like AB InBev, that should be the source of strength. Yeah. And again, we're looking at stocks like AB InBev. We're looking at stocks like Lafarge Olsim. And we're wondering, is there a rotation opportunity out of the flash names, the tightly held tech titans into some of these stocks. And that's the question I think a lot of our viewers are asking, especially given the activity in some of those big tech titans in the last 24 hours. This is joyful television, isn't it? You're just putting the ball on the tee for me. So let's move into that tech story. Amazon shares sold off sharply in after-hours trading as the e-commerce giant missed third-quarter profit expectations. It's the first time profit fell year over year since 2017. The tech company is also forecasting weaker-than-expected revenue growth in the fourth-quarter holiday season season. Um, Elizabeth, uh, our tech reporter, is with us in the studio this morning. Good morning. Good morning. So how much of a surprise was this announcement from Amazon? So we know that Amazon has been making some pretty big investments in the business, particularly on this one-day shipping front. So the company is putting a lot of money towards allowing one-day shipping in the U.S. It just said that cost will be about $1.5 billion now. So that's one of the things weighing on the bottom line here. You can see EPS was $4.23 significantly below that estimate of $4.62. Revenues, though, did beat, and they still are growing 24% year-on-year. 
This other key number that's factoring into that share price decline this morning is, of course, we talk about it a lot, AWS, Amazon's cloud business. So Amazon uh, AWS revenues were $9 billion, also below the estimate. But if you look at kind of the breakdown of that growth, AWS has been powering this company's um, operating margins because it's such a low margin business. It's software, it's cloud. So AWS grew 35% year on year. That's lower than it has been in the previous quarters. It had been as high as like 80, 90% a couple years ago. We did see strong uh, growth in some of the other key segments like subscription services. Those were up 34%. Third-party sellers also increased 27%. And online stores, the bulk of Amazon's revenue still, so its core online sales business grew 21%. I will also just add that digital ad business also continuing to grow strongly. So Overall, kind of the numbers for the quarter were strong, but the guidance was a bit weak, and these investments seeming to show up, that looks to be making investors a bit nervous this morning. The, um, the guidance, uh, I think, was particularly surprising because now the read across from this is, well, just how robust is the U.S. consumer coming into the holiday season? Because it, it's almost as though this is the last engine that is still motoring along, powering the global economy at this point. And if the U.S. consumer is beginning to tighten their spending, then we do need to get nervous about other areas of retailing. Absolutely. And I think the key reason that Amazon is making such big investments in things like one-day shipping is to continue to lure that consumer in. There were some signs that these investments are paying off. A note, for example, from um, RBC this morning saying that strong growth in online sales in the online stores is because of the one-day shipping in the North America market. Um. I went on Amazon, um, the pay channel, obviously. Uh, I've, I have all of them, so I couldn't get well, one. My wife has all of them. I don't watch, you watch much telly, apart from CNBC, of course. Um, I, I, and I noticed there's not a lot on there. I'm kind of like a bit disappointed. And I was like to my wife, well, if we're going to cut one, do we cut this? She's going, well, we can't do that because of my prime. Right. You know, because of our deliveries. Well, so, that's what they've so, got going. And so I'm kind of like, I'm thinking, content. Are they investing as much in content? as some of the rivals who are really stepping it up now. They are not investing as much as their biggest rival, which at this point still would remain Netflix. Netflix yeah. above $10 billion so far this year. It was interesting in this release, they really highlighted some of the success that they've had with that original content. You know, they said they got 15 Emmy Awards with for this, particularly this show Fleabag, which is... um. Based on a, on a which is a British actor. Fleabag. Yes, they they get credit. I didn't for, know that. They, I mean, it's a Phoebe Waller Bridge, isn't she? Who's, yeah. Uh, I mean, apart from being young, talented, incredibly rich. I mean, what she got going for her? <laughs> uh, well, she's won some Emmys, so she's, that's something now. You know, she's co-writing the new James Bond. I did not know that. Yes, she is. They brought her in to add kind of a, a bit of a quirky angle oh, to, the, nice... to the script of the new James Bond. She um, she's, she wrote Killing Eve as well, didn't Killing, she, the yeah, first she's, series. She's got but, nothing so. going nothing for her. Nothing. She's <laughs> incredibly... Oh, to be so talented. Young, talented, rich. <laughs> no, but that, you know, they, they certainly are emphasizing that the original content as a key part of their kind of strategy to keep people on Prime. You know, we saw strong numbers from Netflix the point that Netflix made is that so far the, the competition in this space, so from people like Amazon or Apple, it's all good. They say this is all just part of the ecosystem as people c cut their cords from cable. So it's more a threat. The cable companies remain the biggest threat than some of those other competition players. At least that's the narrative coming out of these. You companies. coming back later? I'm on? coming back. Good, good, good. So our very own young, talented, rich Elizabeth Shaw yeah. will be back a little bit later on. Not you know, sure the, you know the problem with content, don't you? Do you remember William? I thought you were saying you're probably young, talented, no, 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 rich no. people. But this is this is. Uh, I mean, it's just the, this is the big gambit from from these companies. And William Goldman, I think, who was a genius, put it very well Did years he write and Lord years of the ago. Flies? 
Um, <laughs> Someone else, don't worry, William Golding. Uh, nobody knows anything was yeah. the phrase, right? Because he, t- he talked about screenwriting and how screenwriting works. And his message was the problem with content and movies and screenwriting is that actually nobody knows what is going to be successful. Yeah. Mm. A- and just r- making expensive content doesn't always deliver. Absolutely. Uh, indeed. I mean, look at some of those uh, interesting <laughs> movies we've seen. Okay, lovely. Thanks, you'll see. Okay, look. Um, um, let's move on. Let's take a look at Signify. Um, this company has had a really good 12 months in terms of share price performance, up 22%. I want to get straight into the numbers, actually, with Eric Rondelat, who is the CEO of Signify. Eric, always a pleasure. And we know that you're a busy man. So thank you very much indeed for finding time to speak to you, Jeffrey and I. Look, I want to go straight into this EBITDA margin story as well, because the EBITDA margin this time around, correct me if I'm wrong, was around about 11%. Second quarter, I think it was 9% as well. So an improvement from the second quarter. And yet you're guiding to 10.3 to 10.6 as well. So that says to me that the battle is still very intense on margin front. Good morning to you, sir. Yes, good morning, Jeff. Good morning, Steve. Uh, so effectively, we are confirming uh, that our operating margin will improve uh, for the full year by 30 to 60 basis points in a very, very uh, difficult uh, global economic environment. So we're very happy that we're able to progress in this situation. Now, when we look at Q3, uh, the part of Signify that has to grow, which is our growing profit engine, is growing by 1%, further improving on its operating margin by 80 basis points. We have added 3 million connected light points uh, in Q3, and now 78% of what we sell uh, is the energy-efficient LED lighting. When you look at our cash flow, third quarter of positive cash flow, we're entering Q4 with 220 million of cash. Uh, so, yes, in an environment which is not easy, uh, we are continuing to performing in line with our strategic intent. Are you happy with LED-based comparable sales growth of 2.6% as well? I seem to recall you had headier aspirations for a much bigger figure, sir. Well, you look at the market at this point in time, and, and, and we can do you know, look at the different geographies. Uh, we have a continued slowdown in China. We have the early start of a slowdown uh, in, uh, in the US. Uh, Europe uh, has been slowing down for the past quarters. And very recently, since Q2, we have an important slowdown in India. And we are facing now an economy with a, with a liquidity uh, tightening. So at the end of the day, when you look at what we have in front of us in terms of market traction, I think that the 2.6% uh, in LED growth uh, is a good performance. Look, we are continuing to invest, and this is fundamental to understand that our growth fundamental lever is innovation. For instance, we're releasing in uh, Q3 uh, what we call the HDMI uh, box uh, for the Hue offer, which is the connected lighting at home. So imagine in your home that you can connect all your content. It can be uh, movies, you know, you were talking about Amazon previously. Uh, you can connect uh, your game, your TV to a box, and then that box will be connected to your TV, and that box will synchronize 10 lights that you have in your environment and will sync. Oh dear. Um, we seem to have lost uh, Eric Rondelet, the CEO you know, of we lost him Signify. bang on 15 minutes past. I asked you to pay till 20 past. Did you not put enough Obviously coin? not. Did not you not have enough coins? Uh, clearly not. Um, I don't know if he's coming back, but if Eric is not coming back, then thank you, Eric, for joining us. Um, a it's a shame because That's I wanted to shame. ask him about the US acquisition as well. Yes. Uh, because <laughs> they've 
they paid, what, $1.4 billion to buy this Cooper Lighting business uh, in the United States. And the interesting point, I think, is as they're moving, obviously, to this energy efficiency lighting model, uh, in America, President Trump has effectively said, we do not need to move quite so fast towards this. So incandescent lighting, as it's traditionally known, I guess, can stay around for a little bit longer. Bulbs um, can be sold for longer in the North American market. And he's kind of holding back, I think, further development into um, renewable uh, technology and and those kind of bulbs. Because as we know, the the president, I think, has some skepticism about the whole energy efficiency slash renewable marketplace. So I don't have any skepticism about the future being LED and all these amazing things that Eric talked about. That that is obvious. It's coming that way, whatever the president thinks as well. I have skepticism about stand-alone lighting companies. Because if you you think about it logically, we talk about Hive, we talk about Google Nest, we talk about Internet of Things, we talk about the amazing... uh, uh, technology which is going to be covering all areas. Why would you have light bulbs as a standalone part of that equation? Surely it would all be integrated. So I don't know who, if it's the Philips, well, it wouldn't be the Philips as well because they've, they've put their stall out on, on medical systems now. But you, you'd think that there would be a company that think, what, we're going ha- to do it all right from the server, right through the house to the end product as well. And I don't understand why light bulbs would be standalone at the end of this. Um, I think systems is... I mean, I, see, I hear what you're saying, but I think a lot of these companies actually are more focused on systems. And I know um, Eric and, uh, and I, uh, well, you were there. We've talked a lot about how they've provided concert lighting, yes. for example, mm. for, uh, as it turns out, um, a heavy rock concert mm. um, at the time. But, but again, that's just indicative, I think, of the fact that you, you go to a company like Signify now and you're not just talking about light bulbs. You are saying, no, you know, yeah, this is a, a whole say system. Light bulbs, lighting systems there. Yeah. But again, integrate it with the whole Internet of Things is what I'm thinking. I, I can yes. see that happening, can't you? I can yes. see a vertical integration. Having had all these companies, Absolutely. and let's not remind ourselves, Signify mm. is Philips Lighting yeah. with a new name. And Philips Lighting was part of Franz Van Houten's group, which they said we don't need. But I, I can just see mm. integrate. I mean, we've got, for instance, I'll give you an example. We had Alexander Erverkay from AMS in yesterday, the Austrian group, who is trying to buy Osram Licht. Now, different areas, but they're trying to tie up that lighting with their sensors and what have you because they see an integration. Anyway, yeah, it's no, all cyclical, isn't no, it? No, absolutely. There's, there's lots of innovation. I mean, have you noticed um, how interesting the new lighting is getting in restaurants and cafes, the very no. big bulbs? It's, it's, it's almost become um, lighting meets fashion. No? You haven't picked that up at all? Not in no. deepest, darkest Sussex, I can assure you. All right. Uh, moving on very quickly. Coming up on the programme, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson makes another push for a general election as the EU weighs up a Brexit extension request. And ahead, Barclays reports its third quarter earnings. Later this morning, uh, we have the CEO, Jez Staley, first on CNBC, 800 CET. And, oh, it's a goodie today. If you can't get enough of Squawk Box, be sure to tune into our very own podcast. Not the bit where Eric Rondelat's line goes down, but the rest of it's good. Uh, head to cnbc.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to have a listen. A CNBC signature event. 
East Tech West. CNBC's exclusive invitation-only retreat returns to Nanshao, Guangzhou, China in 2019. We explore all things tech from artificial intelligence to 5G. Join the world's most prolific investors, inventors and entrepreneurs as they share their stories and celebrate innovation. Visit EastTechWest.com for an application to attend. Right, ladies and gentlemen, very quick look at the U.S. markets. You saw the Amazon news. You saw the way the stock got a little bit hit on concern. Well, actually quite a big bit here, actually. $80 billion worth of hit uh, on the back uh, of, of underwhelming figures, should we say, as well. Uh, I think it was underwhelming as well yesterday. It was the durable goods orders. They were down around about 1.1% as well. But when you think about it, it's not surprising. We are now at a key point in the GM-UAW strike where actually um, there are hopes that by 6 p.m. Eastern time today, we will get a resolution to it because that's when the voting finishes. Uh, that's been going on the last couple of days from the UAW as well. So that's one reason why the transportation component of the durable goods index was down. And the other one, of course, is the travails that we're seeing over at Boeing with the 737 MAX. So that's kind of that story. As far as today is concerned, we've got Treasury budget figures as well. So that'll be one of the interesting pieces of data. Let's have a look at the Asian indices. I should say, actually, the S&P, mind you, just a a fraction away now from its uh, all-time high, closing high, that is. Uh, Across the board, we don't have a lot of movement on the Nikkei. Or the Shanghai Composite, the ASX 200, seven tenths of 1% higher. The Hang Seng is down by five tenths of 1% as well. Let's move on to have a quick look at the opening calls. Steady she goes pretty much from the major European indices, the FTSE 100, called flat. And again, I really want to focus on this because of our next segment, once again, taking a look at Brexit developments. And my goodness me, I don't even know if we're making one step forward, one step backwards anymore. It just seems a sideways motion. Uh, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson is pushing for a general election on December the 12th in exchange for granting Parliament more time to debate his Brexit deal. That's as the uh, uh, EU 27 ambassadors meet this morning to consider the UK's extension request. Uh, Willem's going to bring us up to speed with the latest on both these stories. Well, we've been waiting now nearly a week to hear from the Europeans. Of course, they're waiting to see what happens here in Westminster until they decide on this extension. Boris Johnson's written this letter to Jeremy Corbyn in which he said he expects there to be an extension. He'd like it to be short. He expects it'll be long. What he's offering Jeremy Corbyn is the possibility to get this Brexit deal through Parliament by November the 6th, as opposed to getting everything done by October 31st. And he says that if that happens, he'd still want to go for an election because this Parliament's broken. So the question then is, what does he do to get Jeremy Corbyn to agree? Here's what Corbyn said in response to this offer. Take no deal off the table and we absolutely support an election. I've been calling for an election ever since the last one because this country needs one in order to deal with all the social injustice issues. But no deal must be taken off the table. He changed the the goalpost, didn't he? A little bit, yeah. He asked for an extension and then said we'd have an election. Now they've got an extension, he's not saying... Well, his argument is we don't have an extension yet. And so that's why the European side, you end up with a slight chicken and egg situation. But he's saying, (laughs) well, exactly. He he doesn't want to commit to that election until he knows that no deal is off the table for October 31st. There are some in the party who'd like it to be off the table the end of 2020, which would mean this would go on for even longer. Uh, In terms of what happens next, we've got this vote potentially being called on Monday. Johnson needs 434 MPs, two thirds majority, in order to get an election on his terms. And as you and I were just talking about in the break, yeah. you know, that's not a very easy thing to do. No. There are alternative ways for him to get there. 
but neither of them necessarily palatable. Well, well the torturous route is a no-confidence <coughs> vote, isn't it? Just, just very briefly before Jeff's question. He can get to his election via that two-thirds, changing the Fixed-Term Parliament Act rules, or well, getting on the base of those, but he can also get there via a no-confidence vote, but then he gives the opposition 14 days to put together a minority government, potentially. His worst scenario, potentially, is if the, minor- the, the opposition get together and say, OK, we'll have an election, but after we've voted in a second referendum. These are, these, are, these are all real possibilities. Yeah, uh, what about this um, uh, the aspect of the DUP and the SNP at this point? I mean, surely both of them would be really keen to support a new election because that would be a, an opportunity for a sorting out. SNP have said again and again, more than any of the other parties, they'd like to see an election. The question is, would be, they be the ones, in a rather unorthodox way, to table that motion of no confidence, given they're not the largest opposition party, but they are clearly the most vociferously one in favour of a new election? It's a really difficult question to see whether they do that, whether they'd be able to persuade Labour to go with them. Um, there are very few good options for the opposition to take control of this process fully. Uh, well, I was just going to say, and yet there's a, there was a new poll suggesting that Scots won't vote for independence at this point, so the SNP might not be keen, actually. Because Even as they say they yeah. want it, just like Labour, they say they want it. Mm. They'll hold back from providing support. And there are lots of good reasons. If you're a Scottish MP, you don't want to be campaigning in mid-December. And that's, that goes for many other parliamentarians because of the, the, the lack of light, the cold, the, sh- the low turnout. Potentially, there's lots of strong reasons Will you wouldn't want to Will it be a then. flexi extension, as they're talking about, i.e. with a, a short-term frame and then to the end of January being the long term? We could find out in about four hours' time. Oh, exciting. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'll be back home in Sussex by then. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.